So we've been a bit sparse, and it's difficult for me to preach it because in an auditorium this size, I have to scan the auditorium. Now, it's all right on the ground here. Up there is like, hello, 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 hello. <laughs> so I'm trying to just scan around the room. But anyway, it's good to see you all. And we're just doing a, a mini series uh, during this summer break called uh, Life Songs. And you know, we're dealing with life's ups and downs. Now, I don't know if you have ups and downs, but I do. I think one of the things you will notice uh, the longer you are a follower of Jesus is that the ups and downs are not so great. You know, at the beginning, they're like, whoa, whoa, but you find the peaks and troughs even themselves out. Now, last week, Denise came up and she was speaking from Psalm 139, uh, her favorite psalm. And one of the key things that she reminded us about was the fact that God wants to be intimate with us. God actually wants to have relationship with us. Now, that's a strange thing because I know I spent most of my life running away from God. But God actually wants to have fellowship with me. He wants to be intimate with me. In fact, one of the scriptures says he wants to come in and eat with us and have fellowship with us. And that was a great word. I, I really enjoyed that. I listened to it on the podcast. Today, we're going to look at I said one of my favorite psalms. I have many favorite psalms. But I'm going to look at Psalm 73. Now, I've, I've preached from this before, but I'm coming at it from a different way. Well, you won't remember anyway because it was a long time ago. However, we're going to look at Psalm 73 and the psalmist's journey as he reflects on the ups and downs of his walk with God. And I hope that we'll be able to draw some, some conclusions from that that will help us as we seek to develop our own walk with God. Is that good? So here we go. Psalm 73. It will be up on the screen. Obviously, if you're on the podcast, you can't see it, but you will be able to hear it. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it oppressed me. It was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. 
when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. It's a great psalm. I enjoy this psalm. So anyway, this, what we're going to do, we're going to look at a few verses, then I'm going to make some comments, then make a few more verses and make some comments. By the way, the notes for the sermon are actually on the, on the, on the, on the website. And if you've not registered to the website, you can't get the notes. So if you register to the website and you want the notes, you can get the notes, but you must register. I won't ask, how many people have registered on the website? <laughs> okay. So here we go. Verses one to three. The psalmist has a loss of perspective. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, the thing is here, he made judgment based on his own experience. You know, chances are he was trying to live his Christian life trying to walk in the right way, and then he looked at some of the, his contemporaries, and he thought to himself, hmm, this is strange. There am I trying to live a holy life, and the people around me seem to be living a wanton life, and they seem to be doing all right. You know, he was inferring that because he was pure in heart, things should go his way. <sighs> It's a trap that we can all fall into that because we live a devout life, everything is going to go well for us. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, sometimes you think that because you serve the Lord, somehow that's going to be your ticket for everything going well. But it's not. In fact, if I can remember the quote from Oswald Saunders, he says, the greatest danger to devotion to Jesus is service for Jesus. The greatest danger to devotion to Jesus is service for Jesus. You remember Job? Now, some of you won't because you don't know who Job is. But Job is a character in the Bible and he lived to all intents and purposes a perfect life. He would pray for his children every day. He would make sacrifices for them because he thought maybe one of my kids would have cursed God. However, it was seen one day that God called some of his sons together and God says to, to Satan, one of the, his sons, he says, um, have you considered my servant Job? 
he, he lives perfectly before me. So the enemy, Satan, says to him, well, of course you, of course you, Job's a good guy. You, you've hedged him about, man. He's got riches. He's got all kind of stuff. Of course he's not going to curse you. Of course he's going he's to honor you. So God says, okay, God says to him, you go and t- take his stuff. So within one day, Job loses everything. He loses the children. He loses the house. He loses his possessions. And we read there that, that Job didn't curse God. He just said, the Lord taketh and the Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So the next day now, in the story, God says, still, you've noticed my servant Job? He hasn't cursed me, even though I've taken all the good stuff away from him. So Satan says, well, skin for skin. If you touch his body, he'll curse you. So... We read that poor old Job had boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. He looked a sorry sight. And I always love the story because his wife, who you'd hope would be an encouragement to him, says, curse God and die. And he looks up through the boils and says, you speak as a foolish woman speaks, which is just a nice way of saying you're stupid. Shall we not accept blessing from the hand of the Lord and also adversity? It's one of those great lines. You see, if you're going to, in this life, you're going to have, there's going to be blessing, there's going to be adversity. Just because you live well and you seek to please God, it doesn't mean everything's going to go well. And he was upset because at this point in his walk, things weren't going well. But chances are he was reading the Bible and he was praying and he was avoiding bad things. So let's look at the prosperity of the wicked. This is what he's looking at, and this is what he's making judgments of. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds have no limits. Because, you see, they feel confident in who they are. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been walking as a follower of Jesus for a long time. And of course, I live with people who are not followers of Jesus. I look at the car I drive, I look at the car they drive. And sometimes I look at the job they have, I look at the job I have. They seem to have a bigger car. They, you see, they don't have to worry about the whole issue of, of keeping rules. And it seems that the next time I see them, they have a bigger car than the last time. They've moved up the ladder. But let's just define the wicked. Well, according to the Bible, the wicked are those who organize their life without any inference to God. If you want to find out about that, Romans 1 verse 18. It says that, that, that God's anger is raised up against people who are unrighteous and ungodly. And one leads to the other. The minute you, you, don't, you leave God out of your life, then why would you keep the rules? They marginalize God and enthrone man at the center of the universe. 
We live in a society that has tried to marginalize God, push God to the extremes of society. In America, you see that they're trying to split commas, you know, the secular from the spiritual. I think there was a program on Channel 4 about a guy there who is going to look at these faith schools and how wrong they are. He's a rationalist. He doesn't believe in God. He's, he believes he's a, a child of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment basically said that man is the center of the universe and knows everything. That's what the Enlightenment's about. You see, there was a period of time prior to that in the Middle Ages when God was at the center of the universe and our politics and our science all came through him. Then the Enlightenment came. Mr. Darwin said, no, you do not come from God. You come from a chain of events. And you come, you're ultimately related to animals. Now, it was very interesting. I, when Benjamin Disraeli was the, first, was the first Jewish prime minister of, the UK, of, of, of England, this debate was raging. And he said in the Houses of Parliaments, he says, your ancestors may come from monkeys, but I know where my ancestors come from. <laughs> yeah. So all of that stuff's going on. And we have a society, and this is how it works, you see. If you decide to make the created the the center of the universe, instead of worshiping the creator, then you have to build a whole kind of theology around that to support it. So when you go down to the National History um, Museum, that is a cathedral to the Enlightenment. It says that if you can't prove it by empirical studies, it does not exist. Now, fortunately, we kind of moved on as a society from that. We're in what we call a postmodernist age. And in fact, we've moved on a bit further than that. The, the trouble with postmodernism is that no one knows anything. There are no absolutes. No one can know anything. So here we have these people. And the thing is, this here in Psalm 73, which was written many, many years ago. But you see, these ideas that the Enlightenment and uh, rationalism and secularism and humanism are new. They're not new. They've been around from the time of memorial. The fact is this, that when people who do not know Jesus, who are living apart from him, decide they don't want God, they have to create their own theology. They have to create their own answers to how the universe came about. And the thing that's getting at the psalmist is that these guys seem to be getting all the blessing. It's almost like the Arabs have all the oil. But some people will say, well, that's not fair. <laughs> but that's, you see, you see, you're making a judgment there, aren't we? We're making a judgment because the good guy should have all the oil. Not saying that they're all bad, by the way. But we're getting a contrast here. Well, let's now see what happens. He begins to come to himself. And I call this verses 13 to 16, the process of growth. He goes this, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In other words, was it really worth it for me to be a holy man or a holy woman of God? Was it worth it for me to keep the rules? All day long I've been plagued. 
In other words, I've been getting it in the neck. I don't understand this stuff. How is it that I'm a Christian and I thought that once I became a Christian, I would float to heaven and everything would be just wonderful and super and great and stand as it Ozzy. I just have goosebumps and feelings and love. Yeah? That's what it's like. I've been punished every morning. I don't understand this. But I'm not wicked. Why am I getting in the neck? I have said, I will speak thus. I, if I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. In other words, I, it was like, I don't understand this. This is like Job saying, God, why are you in my face? You want to read Job, 42 chapters. Some of you think, oh, I can't be done. Read it. Because this is the issue he's having to deal with. He's living good and getting it in the neck. And he's got three friends that are basically saying, you're, the reason you're getting it in the neck is because you're sinful. And he's saying, no, I'm not. First point. Being a follower of Jesus does not, is not just about keeping the rules, hoping that God will reward us because of our holy life. Did you think that becoming a follower of Jesus was just about God going to the cross to get you and save you so you could just keep the rules? For those of you who are followers of Jesus, remember the prodigal son, Luke 15, 29. The elder brother in particular. You remember when the, the younger son went off and was given to wanton living? living with prostitutes and all the rest of it. And when the father saw him come home, he had a big feast. And the brother now, who had kept the rules, came home and said, what's this all about? What's all this noise? Oh, your brother's come home. You should be happy. He says, he's upset. Why is he upset? He says, and this is what he says. He says, I've kept the rules all the time, and you've never given me a feast. But the father says, but you're with me all the time, man. Everything that I have is yours. In other words, it's not just about keeping the rules. Being a follower of Jesus does not mean you will never have difficulties or experience God's discipline. Paul wrote 15 books in the Bible, 12, beg your pardon, 12 or 13. He said this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's Acts 14, 22. In other words, you're going to have trials, you're going to have tests. Hebrews Chapter 12 tells us that if you're not actually disciplined by God, then you're not, part, you're not part of the family. You're illegitimate. You know, you will have difficulties in your life. We will have challenges. We have, and I see two things kind of happen in Christians. Those who are kind of the super spiritual end, when they have difficulties, they start rebuking the devil. Right? You know, the devil's getting to my, I've been attacked. You know, and I, I sense God's like, it's me, it's not the devil, it's me. I'm trying to change you, I'm trying to do something in you. The goal of difficulties we face are to produce perseverance, proven character, and hope. The only way that you're going to shape up is through difficulties. You know, I have to, you know, if I want to keep my body in reasonable shape, I have to exercise, I have to put it through tension. The only way for you to change in the Christian life is that you have to go through difficulties. I don't like it, but that's the way it is. But it says, Paul says this, he says that the tribulations, the difficulties we experience are not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, it's preparation for the future. God is interested in developing you to your full potential. 
which includes sanctifying you, theological word, in your spirit, soul, and body. He didn't just save you to leave you as you are. And he knows how you will operate at your optimum level, and he, he puts together a course, circumstances and situations that will press you and change you. You can fight the circumstances if you like, but God is determined to make sure that you reach your full potential. And to do that, you have to go through process. Then in the psalm now, as he's going through this and working it through, he comes to what I call the central point, verse 17. It was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. So what's the sanctuary? It's a place set apart. A place set apart where we can develop intimacy with God. You see, what God was, God wants to be intimate with us. He wants to get close to us. Because when we come into the sanctuary, when we set aside time to, to contemplate, to pray, to read, we begin to see things from God's perspective, which basically means for most of us, we have to stop. Now, how you do that, how you get into that place, you can do it through reading books, which include the Bible. You can do it through prayer. And by the way, when I say prayer, we don't mean religious uh, repetition, but talking to God. You can do it through contemplation. You can do it through prayer walks. You can do it through solitude. Sometime, somewhere where you just spend time developing a relationship with God. He had to get back to that place because he'd lost it. Intimacy and communion with his God is where we begin to hear his voice where we begin to get a true perspective on what is going on in our life and in our world. If we neglect that place of communion, we find ourselves making wrong judgments about what's going on, one, in us, and two, in our world. Now, verses 18 to 20, you see the true demise of the wicked. And let me just say this. Paul tells us in Hebrews, I think it's 9, 27, it's appointed once for a man, woman to die, then comes judgment. There is a judgment that we all have to go before, to do, to, to give an account for what we've done in this life, whether it's good or ill. And Jesus has two parables in Luke 12 and in Luke 16 about people who thought that, that they were okay in this life, but they hadn't been prepared for the next one. And that's what I want to say about that. But now let's just move into verses 21 and 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. You know, when our hearts are wounded, we live out of our reactions. I'll say that again. When your heart is wounded, you will live out of your reactions. You react to things. 
I look back into my own life, things I didn't know, but things I know now, that you know, prior to me actually coming into the world, before I was born, my mum and dad, they weren't married. And my mum was on her own, and she didn't know whether my dad was going to marry her or not. So as she was carrying me, she thought in her mind, well, what am I going to do with this child? And she thought to herself that she would give him away, give me away. That was communicated to me. That affected me. But I didn't know that. It was only through some prayer ministry that I found that out. And then later on, mum said to me that she had my brother Jeremy in close succession. And she was really ill. So what she did, I wasn't yet one, she put me in a children's home because my dad had to go to work in St Albans. And she tells me of the story that my dad came to see me and I thought that he was coming to pick me up. And of course, he couldn't pick me up and of course I cried the whole place down. So I experienced abandonment. Didn't know about that, but it was affecting my life. Because obviously I had a certain amount of anger towards my mum because I thought that she didn't want to nurture me. Which wasn't true, but that's what I felt. And I felt a sense of abandonment. Now, can you imagine how that, for those of you who know, how that affects your life? It affects your relationships. It affects, you have a deep need, as I did, for affirmation. So you're going to find it wherever you can. So you live out of that incident, even though you're not aware of it. So that's what we mean when you live out of your reaction. You're living, reacting to things, and sometimes you're not even aware of it, as I was. And that's why at times you're senseless, and that's why at times you're instinctive. Let's look at verses 23 to 24. Acknowledging God's protection, presence and protection. Yet, I am always with you. And one of the healing things for me was to know that when God, I was prayed for, that God was there before I was born. And when I was left in that home, he was there. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me to glory. That's home. We realize that our ways and our times are in God's hands. He knows our heart. We recognize that God is our protection. John 10, 28 says, My Father is greater than all, and none can pluck you out of my hand. He's a wonderful counselor. He sends his Holy Spirit, who will be a helper to us. Verse 25, which is, I think, a wonderful verse. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You know, the psalmist, God worked in his heart to get into that place where all the things that he sought to get comfort, he moved away from and realized the only one that can meet his need is God the Father. 
All that God allows us to go through is so that we desire him more than the things that we pursue to fill the void in our hearts or null the pain we feel. When we cease from our own strategies to bring comfort and cast down our false idols, we acknowledge that only God can comfort us. You see, when you say, whom have I in heaven but you? You recognize that God is the one who can comfort you and be the father to you that you've never had. You realize that he's the one that can meet your deepest need. He's the one that can affirm you like no one else can. Verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. You know what your heart's like. You know what your flesh is like. How many times have you sought comfort in other places and it's only been temporary? But I love this. He says, but God, but God is the strength of my heart. You see, this Christian faith isn't just an intellectual appreciation. It's about the fact that we're having an interaction with a living God who wants to come and he wants to lift us up and he wants to pour in oil and wine. But we have to come. When we not acknowledge that we are weak and all our attempts to fulfill our longings are fruitless, only God can satisfy it. Verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of his deeds. Friends, we have to acknowledge that many of the hiding places that we have don't work. You see, when you're down, what do you do? Some people, we eat more food. Comfort ourselves that way. For some of us, we go to sex. And for us men who are very visual, we will seek to find comfort in pornography. And for our women who need emotional and relational love, we seek comfort in hoping that some person will meet our needs and we idolize that person. So that's why the romantic industry is driven by our ladies. Obviously there's drugs. And obviously there's drink. Now you see, it's not that like drinking is wrong, but when you've, you, you drink one and then you wake up the next day and wonder what happened because you've had a bad day. Obviously status, another thing. You see, men, we need affirmation. So what we'll do is we'll become workaholics and hope that the job will give us the affirmation in the sense that we need or power or status or we gather money. All of those things are things that we do when we need comfort. But it's... Only as we draw near to God 
for comfort, that he heals our hearts and he makes us whole. And I'm just like you. I know where my ears of comfort are. I know how easy, because of my need for affirmation, I'm, I was bent, as it were, towards pornography, bent towards the acting out that it happens. And you'll find you're bent towards certain things when the pressure is on. But God's word to you is come to me for comfort. Now, how can we do this? How can we make God our hiding place? How can we make him our refuge? I'm going to make some practical suggestions here. And for, this is maybe a starting point for some of you. Some of you are going on to the Restore course. That will help you to deal with some of this stuff. I hope I haven't opened up a can of worms. But we need to be open and honest with each other and realize that we're in this together. That the ups and downs that we experience are basically because we are looking for affirmation and comfort. And secondly, we have unrealistic expectations of people. Set aside a place where you can develop true intimacy and communion with God. Find somewhere. It doesn't, you know, but just set aside a place. Confess and renounce and forsake all false idols of comfort. That means you're going to need to spend time with God and ask God to say, Lord, show me. Sometimes you won't need him to show you because you know. What do I do when I'm down? What do I do when I feel stressed? Whatever you go to, that's an idol. You need to confess it. Ah, but just confession is not enough. You need to renounce it because it's a false idol. And you need to forsake all false idols of comfort. We thank you. Thank God that we, the word of God says, you know, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But James 5, 16 says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. So it may be that you need to confess it to someone else so they can pray with you. That makes it very real. Align your will with God's will so that your will can be strengthened. And what we mean by this is that we start to recondition our mind. Romans 12 verse 2 says, be transformed by the what? The renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? We read his word. We read things that are positive. So not only is there confession and renouncing, there's also putting the inputs in that are right. Look to God to be healed and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is real stuff, folks. This is real stuff. This is real stuff. We're not, this isn't games here. When you become a follower of Jesus, God is looking to make you whole. But he has provided a way for us so we can become whole. And as we come to him and he heals our hearts and he fills us with his Holy Spirit, we begin to live again. Choose to meet your valid needs in God-given ways. We all have needs, but we choose to do it in the right way. And look to someone in the community that is part of a life group who will pray with you to whom you will make yourself accountable. 
Steve Hobbs is my guy, and obviously Chris. If I'm messing up, I'll get on that telephone and I'll tell them and I'll confess my sin. And they will pray for me, and as they pray for me, they set me free in the name of Jesus. That's accountability. That keeps me on track. My heart and my flesh may fail me, but God is the strength of my life. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Could we please stand? Could the band come up, please? We're going to pray. The Holy Spirit is here this morning. God is in this house. And you know your stuff. You know what's going on in your heart. You know the things that you struggle with. You know the things that you complain about. You know the besetting sins that trip you up. You know where you go for comfort. But God has made provision for us. He's the comforter. And when Chris Lane said this, he said, we were designed to be comforted by God. Any other place of comfort is an idol. So we're going to pray now. Father, we're your people. And you know, Lord, how we struggle to come to you at times when we feel downcast. We compare ourselves, Lord, with those who do not know you and make wrong judgments. We envy the wicked at times. But Lord, we know also that we have many false idols within our lives. Places that we go for comfort instead of coming to you. Lord, we would confess them before you and ask your God to have mercy upon us and forgive us. We pray for us men, Lord, who were to receive our affirmation from you, but because of what happened in that garden, we've sought to find it in our work or in wrong, promiscuous activity. And we ask you, oh God, that you will help us to come to you with our hearts and find our comfort in you. Forgive us, Lord, where we've looked at pornography, where we've behaved in a way that is not honoring to you, where we have allowed ourselves to be bent towards and bow down towards those who have hurt us, Lord, have wounded us. Lord, we ask your God that you will work in our hearts, that we will come to you and you will cleanse us, that we might have right attitudes and have a right heart. That you would be our portion. You would be our comfort. You'd be the lover of our soul. And Lord, where we've experienced rejection and, and abandonment, we may find that you are a father who wraps his arms around us, looks into our eyes with love, pours in oil and wine, and comforts us. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of all comfort. 